1: Dr.
0: Doreen Grand Pichet. Dr. Doreen Grand Pichet is a visionary in the field of autism. Now you can ask her questions on Ask Dr. Doreen. Good morning and welcome to Autism Live and to Ask Dr. Doreen. I'm Shannon Penrod and I'm here with Dr. Doreen Grand Pichet. Morning, everyone. Good morning. And if you don't know Dr. Grand Pichet, I'm so excited that you found us and found her uh, because she is a wealth of knowledge, information and empathy and many other things. Uh, She's been working in the field of autism for over 40, four zero years. That just seems not to be possible. But uh, through a trick of mirrors and good genes, it is. Uh, And she has been working in that period of time with folks all over the spectrum of all ages, of all different races in different areas of the world. So she has, as I said, a wealth of knowledge. She gives us this hour each week to talk to all of you and to answer your questions, your your concerns. So this show is meant to be interactive. We hope that you will be, some of you are watching us live. We're live right now on YouTube, on Twitter, on Facebook Live and on our homepage, autism-live.com. Uh, then we will podcast this show later on in the day to every place where you get your podcasts. It's a free download. In fact, we are the number one rated autism podcast worldwide right now. That's because of all of you, because you tune in for things like the Ask Dr. Doreen. So please be writing in your questions right now. In whatever way that you are watching, please keep in mind that while Dr. Pichet is, I believe, the preeminent expert in autism in our time, she is not able, nor would any expert, be able to give individually specific advice in this format. I think we can all understand that without having eyes on the situation. She only knows a small piece of the pie. But having said that, if you'll send in your questions, she will help you to know what questions to ask next, which I think is a really valuable
1: thing. So Dr. Graham Pichet, welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you, Shannon. And good morning and good morning to all of our viewers. It's wonderful to be here and we're looking forward to answering some questions. We
0: absolutely are. Many questions have come in and uh, we're going to be taking questions live. You guys can write in right now. You can tell us where you're watching from. I see that I just looked and people have already started writing in. Good morning to Parker, Missy, and Johanny, who says, good morning, beautiful ladies. I think I posted my question on the upcoming post. Should I repost here? Yes be in order to be kind to me because otherwise I would have to go look for it please if you wouldn't mind reposting again missy says my friend and I both have autistic sons happy international sons day which was I believe yesterday uh both have problems when faced with making a decision or a choice they cannot select any of the options do you know what could cause this and how
1: to resolve it so thanks for uh, writing in, Missy. Uh, I'll just throw out some ideas because I don't really know enough about uh, the children, your son and your friend's son. Um, but if if your concern is that they have a hard time making choices or decisions, then my assumption is that they are both pretty high functioning. In other words, uh, they are uh, able to understand Uh, various scenarios and what you're seeing is that they're having a hard time making choices between two different scenarios or objects or stuff like that so that being said I it could be a number of different things one is of course we hesitate to make a choice when we don't have a full understanding they are both high functioning thanks for writing in um, we, we have a hard time with making choices when we don't fully understand the choice. So uh, if it's very complicated things, um, it is possible they're having a hard time with that. That's just one possibility. Uh, another possibility is that uh, there is a lot of anxiety. So a lot of times when there is anxiety, when, when someone has a, a certain level of anxiety, they will find it much more difficult to make choices simply because the anxiety they are experiencing makes them feel like no matter which choice they make it's going to be wrong and so uh, we see that we do see that with a lot of our kids because and I don't know if um, if you missy you've seen our other other shows, but we often talk about the fact that individuals on the spectrum do actually Uh, experience a lot of anxiety and uh, for a lot of different reasons Uh, the environment is not as as comfortable for them as it is for others so it is likely that they would experience anxiety and when you do it just becomes very it's uh, one of the things that goes with being in an anxious state you don't want to make decisions because you're not sure you just feel like you're going to be incorrect now Another part of that is a lot of kids on the spectrum have this sort of um, desire, I guess I would say, to uh, put things in order or to be, they're a little bit what we call perfectionist about things, right? So you'll see that across the board. Like with kids, you see that they're very careful about staying inside the lines or, you know, things like that. And you see that there's a little bit of a obsessive nature uh, uh, which we, we i refer to as being they're very perfectionist about what they're doing um and that again leads to a real strong desire to avoid being wrong and so a lot of this might have something to do with it which is like i just don't want to be wrong now another completely option an option that i want to briefly touch on and, and i was just remembering this as i was talking about anxiety is that many years ago we were um, teaching our kids, we were developing a whole bunch of social programs. And one of the things that um, I learned was that some of our children, um, you know how when they're learning things, they categorize them, right? So for instance, I'll just give you an example of of the particular experiment or lesson that I remember was that, uh, so you go to a typically developing child and you draw a circle and you'll say, what, do you, what are some things this could be, right? And they will say, well, it could be a cookie, it could be a pizza, it could be a donut, it could be a tire. I mean, they name a whole bunch of things, right? Um, with our kids, they tend to choose kind of the one thing that in their brain, in their mind, is most associated with a circle. And that could be anything. It could be, for instance, a donut. Like when they learn about donuts, they learn that it is round. Or when they learn about tires, they learn that it is round. And because they learned that tires are round, there's this black and white thinking that our kids have. It's kind of rule-governed thinking where oh, tires are round, so nothing else can be. Right. So there's no there's no gray space as to like this circle could also be a cookie. It could also be a donut. It could also be. So they become very like, uh, you know, rigid thinking. So black and white, it's either this or it's this. It can't be both. It can't be that this circle could be both a tire or a cookie. So sometimes that type of rigid thinking also interferes with a decision right because sometimes our decisions overlap and so all of those things are possible but uh, you know with practice and just helping the child understand additional features or just that whole concept of uh, helping the child realize that there's a gray area and that not everything is one thing or another um, there's a lot of ways you can teach that those types of things will help the child become better at decision making. Just be supportive at this point just help them with their decisions explain the decision process explain to them help them pre- one of the ways that is helpful is having them write down like what are the pros of this side versus this side and then help them count and like decide which one is a better decision.
0: There you go. I love that I you know I, I want to say that my son, really struggled with this. Um, and still it's not his favorite thing when he has to choose between one thing and another, but, um, but, but all of this was, was very helpful to me when he was older, I was able to ask him and say, what's the deal with that? Why is that a thing for you? And he said pretty much what you were saying, uh, Dr. Doreen, he was saying, I don't want to be wrong. And mm-hmm. saying yes to one thing, even if it was just saying, what's your favorite TV show or what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? Yes. He said, I'm, I'm saying that it's this and that it can never be that. Right. And, and, and eventually he learned that he could change his mind, that his That's favorite right. color could be blue today and it could exactly. be red tomorrow or 15 minutes later, it could be purple. That's and that right. that was OK. And that that helped him. That's immensely. exactly right. So um, it's still not his favorite thing. I have a hard time making choices sometimes. Yeah. Uh, but you know, understanding. I, I was so excited when he got old enough that I could ask, "What's the deal with that?" And then he yeah. could tell me, "Ooh, that's good stuff." Uh, okay. So Johani resubmitted her question. It's a little bit. Um, there's a lot, so I'm gonna I'm gonna wean it down a little bit for us. Uh, she's got an eight and a half year old who's been doing ABA since he was five uh, diagnosed at three and a half. She learned about ABA before starting, but then started with 20 hours a week. They are continuing to cut her hours and, uh, are greatly reducing her hours. Um, she says, we're looking out for out-of-center events to expose him to, to, but don't really know what direction to go into. His additional speech and OT are also trying to reduce hours. We're users of skills uh, for living and have been using that to continue to move the goalposts and establish more goals that seem to be overlooked. Lots of executive function, conversation enders, savers, etc am I crazy to think that they should be worked on by both speech and ABA? I'm worried that things are being cut back way too early. Mm -hmm. Am I just being a control freak or are those categories and skills supposed to be completed? If so, by what age? Um, So I love this question. What an amazing mom you are. Um, I, I always love it when you post and send things in. So talk to us, Dr. Graham. Yeah,
1: this is a very, very good question, Yohani. And you've hit, uh, a, a really important issue that's going on and it's unfortunate, but it's real and it's something we have to deal with. So your little boy is eight and a half and, and what you're seeing now is that, um, everybody is kind of starting to cut his hours. I would absolutely see that to be happening uh, across the board. And it isn't necessarily, now I don't know your son, so I can't say whether or not he would benefit from continued therapy because you're saying he's done extremely well. But my my inclination is to say you are right. They're probably cutting his hours a little bit early. And I will tell you, usually the reason for that is that there's a lot of pressure from payers to reduce hours once a child hits eight. Uh, I mean, eight is, and you, your child started at five, so he's had already three three years. And, and unfortunately, the reason for that is that there's not enough research, published research to support the idea that children after eight should be should continue receiving intensive therapy. Now we we've published. I, I am part of a publication that shows that ABA continues to be effective no matter how how old you are, and it continues to have a, a significant effect on learning. Um, and if it was up to me, and if the if funding was not limited, I would want to continue giving every child. Um, intensive kind of ABA or not even intensive, but 20 hours or so on an ongoing basis to catch them up to these additional very advanced skills. But the truth is there's not enough research published. There's not enough recognition within the payer world uh, for people to say, "Okay, yeah, it makes sense. Uh, As you know, uh, insurance companies, payers are thinking of trying to, you know, they're trying to do the right thing, I think, but they are also trying to balance their budgets and reduce hours as fast as they possibly can. So this is one of the things that happens. Um, So let's just put that on the table because it's part of reality. And and I promise you, you're not the only person. There's a lot of parents struggling with this particular issue. Um, I would say, first of all, your child is eight and a half, I, and I think the um, the executive functions conversation stuff and so on is in skills developing. I'm not sure if it's in skills living because skills living is for older individuals. And I think that uh, you're probably in skills developing. Either way, what you should, what I would do, and this is only based on if you can afford this obviously, is I would find one person, let's say, Uh, you know, someone out of uh, school who can be trained, and I would, yes, skill development, great. And what I would do is I would have this person, I could be a young person in their 20s who's interested in like, you know, 10 hours a week of, uh, 10 or 15 hours of of work out of, of, maybe they're a college student, and I would then try to get them uh, online training, um, I don't know that IBT, Institute for Behavior Training, is available to the public right now because I know that CARD took it down uh, f- and is only providing it for individuals who are like already uh on there. If not, there are many other programs out there that are that provide uh ABA training online, right? So they like there's lots of other online portals for people who want to become, let's say. Uh, an RBT. You don't have to become a registered behavior technician. You just have to kind of learn some of the techniques, and that is something that you can definitely do online. And Shannon, we should probably, since IBT is not available to people, we might want to look out there and see what else is, because I'm sure there are other things that are available. And I think that if you can get someone to just be basically trained, to have some basic training, then you kind of have your own behavior technician uh, that you are paying for privately if you can. It's kind of like babysitting, right? And a lot of behavior technicians, honestly, uh, when you hire them independently, they're they're not paid more than slightly over minimum wage, let's say. So if you could, whatever hours you can afford, then that person can continue to work at home, uh, just like you would have a homework tutor. Um, on some of these categories that you talked about. I do think it's important to continue working on executive functions and cognitive skills, cognition stuff, also the social stuff, obviously, conversation starters, enders, and so on. And I I think there's enough to keep things going uh, for a while. Just make sure that it's not, too much for your child. Because once our kids are like eight, eight and a half, they also have academics to keep up with and other things, you know, social world and so on. But I think that it's not a bad idea uh, to have a little bit of more tutoring. I mean, some kids, Shannon, have like additional tutoring for let's say musical instruments or additional tutoring for, for sports or whatever. And and you know, in the, in this case, you might want to consider this. To be the additional tutoring they need um, for a little bit longer.
0: So, I just wanna say we've had on the show before um, Justin Leaf from the Autism Partnership Foundation, and they, cur- well, I don't know if it's current. They, in the past, have offered an RBT training that is, you know, some interesting information for parents. So, um, they were offering it in COVID for free to mm-hmm. caregivers. So if you're looking for more of that information about uh, that, I would suggest that you go to Autism Partnership Foundation. Ask them if they're still doing the free RBT training. Um, Tell them that Shannon sent you. (laughs) And hopefully they'll be able to uh, tell you more information about that. I don't have updated. We haven't had them on. I should talk to Justin and have him come back on to see if they're still doing that.
1: I should just give you an idea of how old I actually am. Uh, um, I went to school kind of like a year right at together with his dad, which is yeah. wrong. So. <laughs>
0: yes. Uh, I know it's crazy, isn't it? Uh, mm-hmm. everybody gets older and, uh, isn't it fun though to see, uh, people beca- grow and become professionals?
1: Uh, I, love I love that his son went into this program. Yeah, it's
0: isn't wonderful. that amazing? Uh, okay, I want to switch now to. Yeah, Yasmin has written in and said that she would like some help with her eleven-year-old son about death. He mentions a lot that he wants wants all of his family and himself to be alive forever that he doesn't want the world to explode, that he wants the world to be okay. This has been going on for years. He says he wants uh, to stay a small boy. I once tried to explain to him about death and it was not good. He was very upset. Since then, I don't know. So any help for um, how to address the death situation, uh, and she goes on to say that every few days he asks if the if the world is going to be OK and if
1: his family is going to be alive, please help. It's yep. hard. It's very hard. And I'll try to give you some pointers. Um, I think and I've had this actually with with a few of my children over the years where they have sort of started to ask about questions that in their mind has kind of blown out of proportion, has become um, something that really concerns them. I guess I would have three specific um, areas of advice. One is uh, don't get into this too much. That's, That's my first advice, which is, the more you talk about this the more the child will obsess. Um, that is just the way it is. And I, so let's just reduce the, con- the amount of conversation. If he brings it up uh, you can always give him a brief answer and then move on to another topic, change the topic, distract him, reduce the uh, focus on this. Second thing is when you do talk about it, perhaps present it in a much more positive light. Um, there are those that believe that dying is not a bad thing, and that. And I would really enhance his image of heaven, and what could, what can possibly happen is is a wonderful, nice thing, and we will all be together there. So there's a lot of ways that you can kind of Make the image of post death a much better thing when the subject comes up. That being said Reduce the amount of time you spend on it. The third thing I want to say which is probably most important is that Whenever a child starts to kind of obsess about something negative It's a real clear sign of anxiety and I think you need to pay attention to that so um, he is feeling anxious Um, And this is one of the areas that he's feeling anxious about. There might be others. Um, I would at this time really try to see if it's appropriate for him. If if it's just one area, you might be able to just handle it with these various like breathing exercises. These are cognitive behavioral uh, ways of dealing with anxiety. Like, you know, give him his own area to be calm and help him to... Uh, put on headphones and listen to music that he likes. Teach him how to distract himself. Honestly, you guys, all the same stuff we would do if we have a moment of anxiety, right? But generalized anxiety or having anxiety for longer periods of time, you can't. It's it's very difficult to deal with it just on a cognitive behavioral way or just a applied behavioral way. So in those cases when there's anxiety about a bunch of stuff, and let me just also reiterate. Anxiety has a way of growing. It doesn't limit itself to one thing. Once you're feeling anxious about one thing, it has a way of spilling over into other things. And then we start like uh, generalizing anxiety. That's why it's called generalized anxiety because it really is like starts to become in more and more environments, more and more topics and so on. And in those cases, it's really a good idea to talk to a psychiatrist and try to uh, see if it would be appropriate for your child to take some medication for anxiety. Uh, SSRI, okay, he's he's currently on anxiety medication, good to know. Um, I think you need to go back and talk to his psychiatrist because this is a sign that they might need to change his medication, increase the medication, add a secondary medication. Um, clearly it's still happening for him and this is really hard it's very very hard when our kids experience anxiety but it's so incredibly important to help them overcome it it changes uh, their lives i see that he's on 25 milligrams of serotonin you should talk to his psychiatrist i don't know anything about your child's age weight prior functioning etc and your psychiatrist can give you some uh, a lot of times with medications, uh, the type of medication is changed and it has much more effect, or a secondary medication is added instead of increasing dosage, and then it suddenly has a significant effect. So uh, talk to the psychiatrist, and uh, you know. And then if you'd like, if you go on Autism Live prior videos, which we have on YouTube. Uh, there are, I have done a, a talk on anxiety within autism, and there's several techniques that we talk about in those talks uh, that are cognitive behavioral techniques that might help as well.
0: Okay. I want to switch to a message that came in right as we were starting the show on our on our website. Uh, a young woman, 18 years old, who's just recently started college, and I'm going to jump to her question, but then I'm going to go back and Her question is, how do I make friends person in college? Do I even need to make friends to have a successful college career? How can I implement structure into my weekends? How do I become more independent when managing my schedule and tasks? And what are some suggestions that would help my further my success in college as an autistic person? She does tell us that she has started college in a different state and has effectively left all of her safe things behind. However, she is going to the same school that her sister, who is neurotypical and a year older, is attending. Uh, But she's struggling because she hasn't made any friends. The only person she has any meaningful conversations with is her sister. And that part of what's happening is she's having meltdowns on weekends because there's no structure. She doesn't feel motivated to, to do things that are either leisure or her assignments because she's used to having, it sounds like to me, um, parents prompt, um, and that what has been helpful is doing FaceTiming with her father, but she feels like her parents are busy people and really can't afford to video chat her through college. So, um, I just love how amazing this young woman is and that she's writing in for this support. Dr. Grampy. I
1: agree. I think it's amazing. And I wish That this was all I was doing all day long was, was, was working with and talking to individuals like this, like you, um, because it's, you can easily solve these issues, but it's a lot. And when it's happening to you, it's a little bit confusing because there's just so much, right? But what I would do, I think, and I so my first word of advice is talk to your dad and ask your dad to help you find or for him to find either a psychologist, a licensed psychologist who has experience with autism or a BCBA, board certified behavior analyst, who is able to uh, just privately consult with you. Uh, If you're in college, and and neither one of those two things happen, uh, you can also go to student health, and all colleges have a psychology section in student health where there are psychology interns who are available to help you and talk to you. My daughter right now is one of those people at her university, and I can tell you that... um, given how, you know, when I went to school, there were not that many psychologists who had experience with, with autism or high functioning autism. But now, uh, uh, like my daughter, and a lot of the individuals in her cohorts all have had some experience with, on the, with individuals on the spectrum. So I think your issues are better dealt with, honestly, with someone who is in the field of psychology. And all you really need is the following. You need to kind of have someone help you organize these things. It seems to me like there's several different categories. One is uh, the, the one that's really important to you is what are some skills that I can develop that will help me in the social world, right? That's number one. Number two is, how are what are some activities that I can do on the weekend so that I feel um, like I'm having fun and maybe even I'll have a social activity during the weekend. So it'll kind of be like two things. But it's like, what are some activities that I enjoy doing um, on the weekends? And how do I go about signing up for these things and starting doing them? That's item number two. The third one is like, what are some of these other skills that I still need in order to succeed in college? Because I think it wasn't just social when you were reading it, there were some other things that involved just having a successful life in college. So these are not difficult things. Once you separate them, there are a lot of resources for each one, right? So like just signing up for activities that you like is a great idea uh, there are if you know there are so many different if you go online and you look at social uh, activities or things that that individuals there are even activities that are for individuals who are very high functioning and maybe that's a good place to start you know where you can uh, find people who are like-minded and have similar interests that's super important on or off the spectrum it doesn't matter because once you're engaged in an activity that you really like the social stuff tends to come easier Uh, in terms of just like specific social skills if you start working with a psychologist they can absolutely give you practice activities that will help you for instance uh, you know, take make sure you're listening to the person that you're talking to just as much as talking. Make sure that you are on, talking about figuring out what things are of interest to another person, not just things that are of interest to you so that you can talk about those things as well. There's lots of little, uh, little pieces of advice and things they can give you, activities, exercises that will help you with the social aspect of it. And, and, you know, even easier is to help you with all those other things that you need in college. College life is tough. It's not easy. Um, and a lot of people need help. Um, so please don't feel like you are the only one who needs help. Um, I'm sure your sister is can be supportive, but probably is going through her own world and her own challenges and stuff. And so I think... Uh, ideally, it's better to get someone else. I mean, really, the first two things I would do is I would go to Student Health, uh, the psych clinic, and get someone there that I can talk to. And I would help ask that person to help me get into some activities on the weekends and maybe even after class. Um, and those two things alone will help you find a better sense of belonging and then you can gradually work on the individual skills that are necessary to be successful through college.
0: I love all that advice, doctor Grant Pichet. and I would just add that if you have trouble figuring out what activity to do, because you just don't know what you want to do, I would encourage you to find where the theater department is and go take a class there and join whatever theater group there is, because here's I former college professor teaching college theater, I I know that the flexibility in and amongst the theater students is going to be higher than any place else. They're going to accept you and welcome you. And you're going to find something there that you want to do, whether it's that they give you a paintbrush and you paint things or you learn how to sew in the costume shop or you end up being the world's best stage manager or you decide that you want to act there. There's a role for everyone and it's all inclusive. And then you will have a community and that will carry you all through college and all through life. I just got goosebumps. I still have friends from my freshman year of college in the theater department, people that I talk to on a regular basis. So, you know, now, does it have to be theater? No, if you are really interested in graphic arts and there's a graphic arts club, do that. But I know for sure, if you can't find anything else, go to the theater department. If you're really into graphic arts, they'll put you onto making the posters. They, yeah. they'll they'll take any volunteer and put you to work because there's something for everyone. That's so true. Yeah. That's absolutely yeah. right. But there are lots
1: of activities, but you know, Shannon, like I remember also, when you're in university, you just feel so isolated. Uh when you especially when it's like seems overwhelming. Yes,
0: yes you know, one of the classes I used to teach on the college campus was I, you know, I would teach the more advanced acting classes, but I also taught the beginning introductory to theater class, which would be between 150 and 450 students Mm -hmm. um, every semester. And they could either write a paper, a term paper, or they could do 15 hours of work in the theater department. And of course, who wants to write a paper? They would do the 15 hours of work And what would be amazing to me every year is the people who would write me letters and say, thank you. This was the way that I found my way into college life. I I met three people. I didn't stay in the theater department, but I met three people and I had, you know, and the one person who said to me, thank you. I I found my home, you know, so So. that's I encourage you look at the theater department, Uh, but it doesn't have to be that. Okay. Uh, we had a bunch of people write in, in the night, uh, with similar sorts of issues. I'm going to start with this one, which is from a 27 year old gentleman in Germany. Um, this is another really long one. So I'm going to whittle it down and please forgive me for editing. Um, but they were in a relationship with a now ex-girlfriend who said to them, I really think that you have ADHD and autism. Uh, they went and immediately got a diagnosis of ADHD, but they sort of rejected the autism diagnosis from the ex-girlfriend felt that that was inappropriate, but during the pandemic, while they were still having a bunch of issues, they did a lot of research Mm -hmm. and more and more, he seemed to identify with this diagnosis, went through all of the hoops in Germany to get, uh, To the point where he got an appointment went in and spent two hours with the person and at the end and at one point he even mentions that they called in a colleague uh Mm -hmm. to also talk with him but at the end the they said to him that he doesn't have autism that he has other issues and this felt devastating to him that he has a lot of anger about it doesn't really feel like Not really sure that it's accurate because he went home, said that she didn't ask him any questions about his perception, that he feels like she kind of jumped to some conclusions about conclusions about things that he said. He's wanting to know, is it worthwhile to get uh, a second diagnosis? Does this happen to people? Should he be upset about not getting the diagnosis? He felt like it was an answer and now he doesn't have an answer. And it felt like a lot of hurdles that he
1: had to go through and that he was rejected yeah I get it. And I understand because this is uh I've heard this before, and I think that what happens is that it becomes very important sometimes for us to feel like we've found our tribe, or we have figured out exactly what's wrong. Like sometimes we feel like we need a name for it right? It's sort of like if you have a headache and you don't know what the headache is due to, you're just kind of struggling and suffering and you don't know what to do about it. But, and sometimes it just gives us closure to have some sort of name for it. That being said, once you have that name, uh, the what's important is kind of what do you do with it, right? And sometimes The value of having that name is just to go down the path of what others with that label have, have done. So you have two choices here. If it's extremely important to you to have closure in regards to whether or not this fits, then certainly you can get a second opinion, right? And I know that it's a hassle in Germany or here. It is difficult. But if that's extremely important to you, then certainly you can do that. My advice is to just, and this is sometimes even after I give a diagnosis to an individual, I tell them not to worry too much about the label, but to focus on the symptoms and to try to work on those things that are difficult. With or without a, a label We all have things that are, that make it difficult for us to to survive and to thrive. And so working on those things in particular is always a good thing, right? Like some of us might have a little bit of depression. Some of us might have a little bit of anxiety. Some of us may have felt during COVID that either one of those things has increased and now it's starting to affect sleep or uh, our desire to go out and socialize. Sometimes we feel that we're very distracted and maybe not able to focus. There are lots of these symptoms that are symptoms of, let's say, ADHD or symptoms of autism. All of these things are present in us um, and it's a matter of, does it get to a point where it's so severe that it prevents us from functioning and thriving? And that's when it becomes kind of labeled as something. So. Uh, You know, my advice is to kind of move forward with or without the label and identify what are the things that are very difficult for you um, and to start finding solutions. You know, if you already uh, received a diagnosis of ADHD, have you now spoken to uh, uh, people who can help you, professionals in the ADHD world? Um, Have you started perhaps looking at medications? that are for individuals with ADHD? Have they given you exercises to to improve your ability to reduce distraction and increase attention? Um, And and on the autism spectrum, what are the things that you're struggling with? Sometimes it could just be uh, social communication. Um, And have you started to do things that will help improve those particular symptoms of autism. So, you know, if you can move past the label, then I would focus on getting help for those specific symptoms that you feel are, are put you on, under that category or in that, that group. On the other hand, again, as I said, sometimes Shannon, it's important for people to feel like, wow, this explains why I'm having such a hard time. And that's completely understandable. And if it's very meaningful for you, do get a second opinion. A lot of people come to me and get second opinions as well. There you go. Uh, Someone else wrote in right before the show
0: and said, hello, I'm 24 with autism. I also have a neurodegenerative condition that causes me near constant migraines and also seizures sometimes. I deal with mystery body issues too, like weakness and pain. You can imagine this life has made me very resilient, but I am not able to be independent, I can't work, I make a little money here and there selling art or nudes and stuff, lol, and it's enough to take some weight off of my partner. I also do most of the housework and stuff, which I feel is fair and I don't mind it. I do prefer it to be done my way anyways more comfy that way. But some days I'm much more sick than other days. And I'm having a meltdown inside of my head and want to scream and cry for help. But my masking level is way too high. And so I just carry on. On the inside, I'm wailing, crying, wanting to die, but my mask filters it out. And so trying to express this pain to my partner or family or friends, but I don't think they get it. They don't realize that if I'm saying I'm not okay. And if it reads like I'm not okay, a level three out of 10, and I'm already in a nine ten, and it just doesn't seem like it. I'm a highly independent of spirit and I don't like asking for help. And I especially have a hard time asking for help because it never seems like it's a good time. I try very hard to respect my partner's stress. He has ADHD and bipolar and I admire his resilience because he supports both of us. And I don't want to pile more on top of him, but they go on to say, do you ever feel like this mask you've made to maintain function is actually detrimental? Do you ever want to just have a full blown autistic meltdown, panic attack level, rocking back and forth, expressing thoughts of suicide, just to get those inner thoughts and feelings uh, of your normal mask away and out there? Sometimes I feel like that would be the only way to express truly what's going inside of me and how severely I need help. And they said, asking both for advice and solidarity. Yeah. What an amazing articulate whew, yeah, writing.
1: Beautiful and also sad. And I yes. just want to say yes, yes, to all, everything you wrote. There are a lot of people who feel the same way. On or off the spectrum, the issue of mental health has become a very important issue. Fortunately, it has come to the foreground because I think, partially, Shannon, because of what everybody has suffered through the the COVID era, and and you know, while uh, I think 2020 and 21 kind of has started to wear on people, and I think that a lot of people feel, uh, in some ways. Their their issues have become accentuated. I want to say, you know, first of all, good job. You have partially taken off that mask by writing to us, which I think is fabulous. The fact that you've opened up to us is a wonderful, wonderful step. I don't think the people around you are the people who are going to be able to help you get through this. Um, You need professional help in the way of a psychologist and that is going to be very very helpful you might even need a psychiatrist it's interesting there's a um, commercial right now on tv i can't remember which medication it is but it actually the commercial has to do with someone who's depressed and holds a mask um, and, the, the, you know, they're trying to show the world that they're okay, but they're really not okay inside and you're not okay inside and I appreciate that you've tried very hard to give the world an, that a, a message that you're strong and that you can cope. And that probably has something to do with how you've grown up. You are a very strong person and you're show, trying to be as strong as possible. But sometimes it's appropriate to not be the person that is trying to be strong. Sometimes it's appropriate to show weakness and have a space of safety where you can just let it go and let it all out. There's a lot of venues for that. You know, there are there are yoga classes where they, where they actually teach you. To scream and and yell and get all of the energy out um, psych, there are psychological practices when you see a psychologist they could even give you uh, you know ways that you can go home and punch a punching uh, bag or something to get it all out. There are many uh, conditions where we need to just let go once in a while, so please don't feel bad about that. But the bottom line is, nobody should be living day to day with misery and sadness and trying to hide it. Uh, you deserve to feel better. You deserve to feel better. And so the way that you're going to feel better is to actually go talk to a psychologist who and a, who will then help you get with a psychiatrist. Maybe it's a combination of medication as well as Therapy. Therapy is always a safe place every week, uh, maybe even twice a week, where you get to tell someone all the things that are in, in your heart and that are keeping you down. And they help you by giving you coping mechanisms, activities, exercises, places you can go, things you can do where you can get it all out. And, and it's a time that it's all, that's all about you and uh, where it's about how to nurture you and and psychiatry of course is where you can get medication that will help take the edge off and that will help you look at the bright side of things as opposed to being pulled down by the darker things that are that 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 you're seeing and experiencing so please i urge you don't waste any more time Uh, go see a psychologist or a psychiatrist. You can start with either one. You you probably are going to benefit from both. Um, And I promise you, you can get help. And uh, it's not that difficult. And you have only one life. You will feel so much better. And you will go through and be a better, uh, you'll, you'll be able to contribute in so many other ways to those people around you as well. Okay,
0: thank you for that. And we're sending you lots of support and write in if you need more information. Uh, Another person who wrote in um, 33 33 years of age and who expressed to their significant other that um, that they have suspected for a long time that they have autism, Uh, they say, but they they're 33, never been diagnosed. They say, when I was a child, I was diagnosed with ADHD, however. They expressed this to a person in their life who then asked why they thought they had autism. Their answer was because of hyperfixations, obsessions, difficulty reading body language and tone of voice, hard time making friends, difficulty flourishing in social situations, being too blunt, taking things literally, or being unable to read the underlying context of someone's words or actions, sensory processing issues, overstimulation and burnout. After I expressed this to her, I told her I'd like to get a diagnosis, but wasn't sure where to start. She immediately told me that there was absolutely no world in which I would get a diagnosis at 33 years of age, and that she did not personally think that I'm on the spectrum because I'm very verbal and able to express myself. Um, They go on to talk uh, about how the fact that they are able to mask well um, and that it has made them angry that they were dismissed. So out of hand, so readily, um, they feel that a lot of these symptoms run in their family and, um, but that this person in their life is very good at dismissing anything that they brought to them in the past. So that might just be her, uh, in any case, uh, your thoughts on this, Dr. Grant Pichet. should this
1: person seek a diagnosis? I think you should. I think you should from a professional. And I don't think that, you know, I think uh, it's in some ways, it's similar to the individual that was there before, right? Uh, now, Shannon, the person who was dismissing everything, was that a, a psychologist or a, did they say
0: No, they don't say, and it doesn't, it doesn't read to me like they're a psychologist because they're saying you'd have to go to somebody else to get that. And they're not going to give it to you. I think, I don't know whether it's a family member, a friend or someone they're in a relationship with.
1: Yeah. So I would, I would say that, you know, just, just so you know, I, uh, I, I diagnose individuals, right. I've been diagnosing for a long time and I have, recently especially during the last two years have had a lot of very 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 high functioning adults come to me who have whether it's a parent who has started to see some symptoms of autism within themselves once they have a child on the spectrum or if it's just an individual who's now learning about autism and has come to conclude that it sounds like me, that type of thing. And I have diagnosed a lot of folks over the last few years who are very high functioning adults. So it is definitely not out of this world to go see a professional who will diagnose you at this point. That is not true. Uh, A lot of us professionals in the field of autism are actually starting to see more and more adults who are very high functioning. Um, So I think... I think it's important, it's very similar to kind of the last uh, uh, question that we answered in the sense that if it's important to you to find out whether or not you actually would qualify under that label, I think it's important for you to go see a professional. That is, that's something that you should do. You should never get a diagnosis from, let's say a pediatric, like whether it's a pediatrician or just a general practitioner or a physician who is not. Uh, an expert in the world of autism might think that, and and a lot of other people might think that autism, in order to get a diagnosis of autism, you have to have severe symptoms. That's not the case. You have to have a certain number of symptoms, but the the severity of it can be mild, okay? A lot of the things that you noted are very much uh, within the symptoms criteria of autism, absolutely. Uh, a a lot of those things are, so why not get a diagnosis? But more importantly, uh, as you're doing that, whether you do that or not, you know, look at each of the symptoms on its own and get help for those things. Uh, Whether it's a matter of, you know, it's a very, there there are exercises that can help you see someone else's perspective. There are books you can read about that. Um, Each of the things that you listed Uh, can be supported, uh, can be through various types of interventions, can be strengthened. So, you know, kind of work on your skills and work on strengthening those areas that you need help with. But certainly, uh, I don't want you to feel dismissed. Uh, I think it is important to find a professional who can sit with you and say, yeah, these are symptoms of autism. And maybe they'll say, well, you know what? There's not enough symptoms to give you a diagnosis, but nevertheless, these are things that are symptoms and you need help with these. And here are some ways that you can get help.
0: There you go. I'm going to try to squeeze one last question in about food selectivity. Uh, Hi. So for all my life, I've had food texture sensitivity, specifically with a lot of vegetables and seafood. Even if I love the taste, I hate the texture. Honestly, I'm so sick of it. It has negatively impacted my diet so much. And the only advice I've ever been given is to just get over it and to force myself to eat things uh, till I like it. I've tried eating things prepared differently in small quantities, but I react so poorly that I'll almost puke at the table or it'll bring me to the verge of tears. It's so embarrassing having to order something without any vegetables or just basically eliminating entire sections of menus because of it. I want so badly to eat healthy, but it's so hard. And living on a college uh, campus meal plan, I practically live off the grill items and have gained so much weight. Is food sensitivity really just something I have to force my way through and be miserable with. Any advice would be greatly appreciated. Uh, they want to also add that they are on the college meal plan. So if they try something and don't like it, they can't really get something else and they end up not having a meal. Um, and they also don't have a kitchen, but they do go on to say that they're, this I think is so eloquent and people need to hear. I only milk and biscuits, sometimes cereals, um, and that they very much want to start it, that they've stopped looking, seeing food as things that are edible, that when they look at food, it's like looking at a jar of body lotion or a bag of pencils. Even though they're on a college plan, they're living with their parents. Um, and that when they open that fridge, their brain sees no food and they don't understand why. It's been more than two months since I slowly started to replace every meal with milk and biscuits, even though I know it's not okay. I can't stop. Do you have any idea what might help or any food that by itself is a meal, but it's healthier than milk and biscuits that could, that I could eat every day and slowly get rid of this biscuit addiction?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So you need to, it sounds like it's getting pretty severe. Uh, If you have limited yourself to only milk and biscuits, that is probably not the best thing. Um, There are, of course, uh, food replacements like Insure, I don't know what country you're in, but... There are, uh, these are drinks that are given to seniors who are not getting enough nutrition. Ensure is a great example. I mean, if you're drinking and it's kind of like chocolate milk, if you're drinking Ensure, you basically are getting all the nutrients you need at least. But I'm concerned that you are not uh, actually, that you're kind of narrowing your food selection to to almost nothing. Okay. Okay so that has to be reversed and it's not a matter of just getting over it it is um, just like it has become more and more selective it's a shaping procedure where it becomes more and more broad i'm going to tell you how we do this shaping procedure but you will need to find either a behavior analyst aba specialist like a bcba board certified behavior analyst who will help you with this Or a lot of speech therapists also know how to do feeding therapy. Feeding therapy is kind of interesting. It's a process where you take a very small amount of the thing that is disgusting to you or hypersensitive or, um, you know, the, uh, the items that you don't like very tiny amounts. Like we're talking a quarter of a teaspoon, just a tiny, tiny amount. And then you can eat the other stuff that you want, like the cookies and milk, right? And then the next day or next meal, you will take a little bit more. And then you can reward yourself with your other stuff. Then you take a little bit more. And what you do is you gradually start to increase the various foods that you don't really like to eat or are hypersensitive to while uh rewarding yourself with the stuff that you do like and gradually as these meals these other foods increase you will automatically become full so that the the reward stuff the milk and cookies will decrease and there are the reason i want you to go to a professional is that there's a lot here it's not just the type of food as you said it's also the texture so there has to be a gradual increase or change in the texture you might start out with things that are uh, palatable for you whether they are crunchy or they're soft or whatever it is that you can handle um, and then gradually you will change the texture now I will say I, I question whether it's texture alone because you are enjoying milk and cookies which have completely different textures um, so it could also be that you're kind of starting, your body is starting to get addicted to sugar or gluten or casein. And that's kind of important too, because what you're taking in here is not just unhealthy because it's sugar, but it might be difficult for you to digest because milk is, we're talking about casein, which is, uh, and cookies, you're talking about gluten. And those are the two proteins that are the hardest to digest. So those two things might also be uh, causing you an endorphin rush. And it's a, you know, we don't, unfortunately we're running out of time. So I don't want to talk about like leaky gut and all this sort of stuff. But suffice it to say that you do definitely need to get off of just milk and cookies. And it's a process where an individual will help you uh, get back into a pattern of eating normal foods. Uh, You know, sometimes the things that we eat are not always healthy, so it's not like you have to restrict yourself to just vegetables and fruits. Uh, You can have some grilled products, but it's a matter of making it, so that it's a normal diet and it's not restricted to just two items that happen to be very unhealthy. It is feeding therapy and it's a process. I want to tell you, it takes, you know, several months because it's a very, very gradual shaping procedure.
0: Wonderful. We're so out of time. I just want to thank you, Dr. I want to apologize to everybody whose questions we didn't get to. We do our best. Be persistent. Keep asking them. Uh, We said we had an announcement today. We don't have an announcement today. You need to tune in tomorrow. Tomorrow is International Podcast Day. We are pausing everything tomorrow. I'm going to do my top 10 parent tips. I'm calling this my last lecture. We're going to want to tune in tomorrow because we have some really pivotal information about the future of Autism Live that we'll be revealing tomorrow, so don't miss tomorrow's show. Uh, it's the one not to miss. Let me just say, uh, Dr. Grampy thank you so much. I can't even tell you how much you mean to me and how much it has meant to have the last 10 years doing this with you. You're amazing. Uh,
1: It's been, it's a pleasure. I enjoyed it today. Very busy day. Lots of questions and we love it. And hopefully
0: we can do more of this. There we go. Thank you all for being here. Tune in tomorrow. Until then, give your kiddos a hug from me and one for you too. Bye-bye for now. Bye everyone.